You are listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister, followed up by question and answer exchanges with groups of his students. I was flipping the channels and I was noticing on one of these stations how they had this motivational speaker who was uh, articulating a commitment to being addicted to positive thinking. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, positive thinking is, uh, is certainly more open, less contracted than negative thinking. But the minute there's addiction in there, we are attaching, especially if we're committed. If we're committed to the addiction of positive thinking, we are still inherently bound by the very thing that generates suffering. And the very thing that generates suffering is our clinging to things. And mind is the interpreter and creator of things. So this self-help person was actually articulating something that could be very, very beneficial to helping the self, but the small self only. Small self-help. <laughs> and that's not to say that there's anything wrong with thought. Thinking is uh, what, in many cases, helps guide us through very, very torturous situations. It's having the ability to reason. This is wonderful. It's a great gift. We actually are conscious. You know, we have awareness. And then the awareness of that awareness is our consciousness. And then that consciousness can interpret stuff as it arises. But that awareness is always there. We can be aware of our own consciousness. And this awareness, if we can kind of relax into that openness, that's what generates a conscious liberation from things. So it's almost as if it's on three different levels here that I'm kind of, I'm drawing a map for you, so let go of it real quickly, but just pretend that there's like this awareness. And then the, the awareness of awareness is our consciousness, and then our consciousness can interpret all things as they arise. Everything, every thought, every feeling, every state, every event, every circumstance, every indiscretion, every glory, every bit of pain, all that stuff can be interpreted in our consciousness. But what actually is aware of all that, the infinite awareness. Relaxing into that as we meditate, being infinitely aware of every thought that arises within our personal consciousness, the awareness of that personal consciousness is awakened mind. 
It is Buddha mind. It is the always, already present enlightenment that every one of us has as our natural state beneath the mask of ego. Meditation is the work. First, it's seductive usually, and then it becomes work. It's the work that allows for that mask to be removed and removed and removed again and again and again in each and every present moment. So it's very important that we recognize that awareness is not thought. That might be a shocker, but awareness is not thought. It's different. Thought is the activity of mind. Awareness respects and honors all thoughts as being equal to all other thoughts and all other mind states. Awareness looks at them equally. Awareness is able to be intimate with thoughts and things without grasping for them or trying to avoid them. Awareness is simply aware of them. So stabilizing ourselves from this spaciousness is awakening. Stabilizing ourselves from this spaciousness, this intimate spaciousness, is wakefulness. So, another way of looking at this, perhaps, is that the mind and its thought patterns, its habitual movements, are always running us around. And this is because the mind can only exist where there is movement. The mind can only exist where there is movement. Mind and movement are inextricably linked. So in this way, we could say that mind is movement. We could also say that mind is our separate self-sense. It's our ego. It's analogous to ego. That in us which feels separate from all other things. With that being the case, mind is equal to ego, and movement is equal to mind, the syllogism there is then that movement is ego. All things that move are ego, are totally related to ego. They're just right there with it. Something moves, ego interprets it. Ego, ego interprets it from the position that I, ego, am in here, Everything else is out there. That's the veil that keeps us asleep. Having a relationship to life in that way, where I'm in here and everything else is out there, that defensive pattern is what keeps us locked away from awareness. Our consciousness is limited there. We're bound we are addicted to thought. Maybe it's positive thinking. 
Maybe it's negative thinking. Nonetheless, we are locked in this bunker. So if we consciously source our life from the opposite of this movement, if we actually build a life on the practice of stillness, we can find and uncover our natural state, which is always already there. Always already there. And it's also always already beautifully complete. There is nothing in it that is ever lacking. There is nothing in it that is too much. There's nothing extra that is needed. A student of Suzuki Roshi's told me that what was so special about this particular teacher of Zen was that there was nothing extra. What a beautiful way to describe somebody. Nothing extra. It was just pure him. And in the pure himness of him, <laughs> people saw themselves. They saw their natural state. They saw their natural state where there are no limitations and no boundaries. There's only freedom. And this is where our personal sense of things merges and then is spontaneously informed by this deep singularity of the all. And it's from here that our awareness can metaphorically be like a big sky. And all things in life float by like clouds, dissolve like clouds, carry precipitation like clouds. They're noticed by our awareness, but neither grasped nor avoided. They're just accepted for what they are. Each circumstance, each unfolding, each cloud. So this is why we say in meditation, we don't try to change anything. In meditation, we're not trying to alter our mind state. We're trying to watch our mind state. We're trying to watch our thoughts. In watching our thoughts, we don't get grabbed by them. And if you think about this, that which is watching our thoughts cannot be the thought. It's somehow not dissociated, but actually integrated with something that is bigger, more complete, more whole. We watch our memories and we watch our plans when we meditate. And we do this with this dispassionate and open awareness. We watch our thoughts and feelings with a dispassionate and open awareness. We merely observe precisely all things as they arise, just like we might lie on our back in a field on some beautiful autumn day and watch the clouds as they pass by. So in this open, openness, 
in this openness, we can experience life without being caught by time, by our past, by our future. We can be right here. In this openness, we can avoid being caught by our thoughts and feelings, by mind, by ego. We can avoid being addicted to positive thinking or to negative thinking. We can simply watch our experience. And that watching of the experience means that we are not caught by thought. All thoughts in this space, which are things, reveal the ineffable in each and every single moment. They reveal infinity to us right here, right now, as long as we give it that chance. And this happens whenever we integrate stillness into our lives. Consciously, that still awareness, consciously begins to allow all things to kiss us with enlightened lips. We are touched deeply by all things and all things begin to enlighten us. A.H. Dogen used to say, to study the self is to forget the self and to forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. That's what we're doing when we sit still. We study. And we let that stillness inform every bit of movement. And in that way, that in us which is awake informs the intention of that in us which is asleep. And so we begin with this vessel, with our body-mind, we begin to walk through the world informed by both emptiness and form all at once. And then we're enlightened by all things. Cake, right? Will you please read your first uh, quote on awareness again? Uh, I didn't actually, unfortunately, quote anybody. Was it that awareness is not thought? That's, that's the most important thing. <laughs> or do not get caught by thought. Um, I forget, Brad. I wish I, wish I remembered. I do too. Oh, was it, oh, you mean the, the, the self-help person, what, what uh, she was saying? That she was saying uh, that I'm committed to being addicted to positive thinking? Yeah. No? Do you want me to try to go through the whole Dharma talk again? Because I could... <laughs> Obviously, you have to go back and listen to the Dharma, <laughs> Dharma talk again. Yeah, right. Was it Suzuki Roshi? Was it what he said? Uh, could have been. Nothing extra. What was so miraculous about Suzuki Roshi is that there was just nothing extra there. That just blew me away when I heard that. Because so much of the time we are 
all predisposed to making sure the world sees something extra. And that extra is ego. That extra is mind. That extra is things piled on top of what could be uh, rarefied, purified awareness. Plus, it seems to me that in our society that we put a premium on not only showing extra, but the more extra we show, you know, the more it's perceived as being a good thing. Bling, bling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the more extra you show, uh, the more status you have in a lot of different cases, the more... Yeah, it, it, and it, you know what? Um, that's one of the radical shifts I think that this practice offers. It's that you can have that. You could drive your Ferrari, that, that, you know, uh, but if you're attached to what that Ferrari gives you, the extra that it gives you, then we're not on the path with both feet. But the Ferrari or whatever material object any of us might have, it's just stuff. It's just stuff. Our relationship to that stuff is where we find our gold for practice. Because if we attach to it, boy, it shows us exactly what we need to let go of. And I think, I mean, I, I'm not beyond this. I, I think all the time of, hmm, let's see, how, how can we most, in, in the most integrated, authentic, truthful way possible, can we grow infinite smile and keep it small? Okay? So that can be an attachment if I or any of us aren't careful. And when the minute we attach to that, the minute we attach to an outcome, we defile everything along the way. So having that goal is fine. Our relationship to that goal better be informed by openness or else it creates a contraction. And it's like, it's like squeezing a flower, you know, or trying to grasp a cloud. You just wreck the experience of being with the cloud. Doesn't mean you're not directed, but that that, that direction is informed then by the stillness. And, and obviously that's an extremely fine line to walk. Yeah, and that's why it, it's so difficult, I think, in, in this culture for this to grab, so to speak, or gain traction, even though it's doing just fine. The non-dual spiritual traditions, whether they be, you know, Vedanta Hinduism or they, they're Zen or Dzogchen or any of these other uh, different, different uh, wisdom traditions are gaining traction because people, I think, they're listening to this hunger in ways that the traditions of their childhood can't quite answer. Um... I could go on and on about this, but uh, having been to various countries and parts of the world where Buddhism, for instance, is deeply ingrained into the social fabric of the country, they still have their own problems there to deal with too, though, because Buddhism is not a path leading towards awakening. It becomes an egoic negotiation for good and bad karma, which is nothing other than being addicted to positive thinking. 
so not to get smug about this or anything, but, you know, what do we really want? What do we really, really, really want? Go there. Study that. And in studying that, you'll forget what was studying it. And when you do that, we're enlightened by all things. And then there's nothing extra. What do you mean by the infinite smile? To make it a small part. To me, when you talk, this is, I'm not very, I'm ignorant when it comes to meditation on this. You know more than you think. But you, and I'm not very good about reading poetry, but I'm like listening to a poet and I'm not getting all that you're saying. It's, you're using very complicated language. I'm a very simple-minded person and you're not speaking. <laughs> I don't get you. Right. I'm having a hard time. But what do you mean by infinite smile? What is an infinite smile? I think an infinite smile is stillness. Okay, what do you find in that stillness? Everything and nothing all at once. Now the mind is going to absolutely freak over this. And this is why in Zen, the Zen tradition is all about teasing that. Like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And what is, what is the mind exactly? What does the mind do? The mind first goes, uh, let me try to figure this out. And then it's like, who cares, right? And so that's, that's where the resistance comes in. What this work is really supposed to do, Susan, believe it or not, is stop the mind. And so if you're not understanding what I'm saying, but it still, does it... Because what the mind, no, no, the mind is a really useful tool. And so when we can use our mind as a tool, that's wonderful. But when we are tooled by our mind, that's when we get whipped around by the winds of life. That circumstances push and pull us instead of being, you know, kind of centered. So when I'm going about my daily life, interact, walking down a street, do I, as would I make my mind still at that point walking down the street or do I save it for quiet times like we do here tonight? The still mind is always there no matter what. And you can look at it like, like a stage. Sometimes I talk about the stage of mind. Mm-hmm. And when we have chatter going on, mm-hmm. okay, what we can do is watch that chatter. When you're walking down the street and you're making plans for the next week, mm-hmm. and it's like, wait, we're going to whose house for Thanksgiving or whatever, you know, whenever, whenever that's starting to turn, Okay, you can you can simply just kind of go, oh wow, there goes there goes my chatter. So you become aware of it and you say that. Do I categorize it like you said last week into planning, judgment, memory? I think that is so helpful at the beginning. So helpful at the beginning because what it does is it creates a relationship with that in you which is the observer, which is the seer, which is the witness. The witness is the thing that can go, oh, there I go, planning again. And the minute you do that, you actually pull yourself back into the audience watching what's on that stage, okay? And over time, as we kind of practice this, you move further and further back in the audience so that the stage itself occurs, but it's really insignificant because you're having an experience up in the balcony that's just wonderful, that is an infinite smile. 
because there is peace, because you are liberated. You're not attached. You're not detached. But yet you still have to go back into the world and... Absolutely you do, but you go back into it from a broadened perspective as opposed to a contracted perspective. Just like you walked back into your life after you gave birth to your boys, different, you, it was a whole different... You were now a mother. Right, I changed hats. You changed hats. There was a, it, and it broadened you. Mm. And this is the same thing. This is a rebirthing. This, Born again. Shakyamuni. Will this make me interact with people differently? Will it make me a better person? Where I would pass on something positive? Not positive, but will I make a difference in someone else's life by stealing my mind, being an observer, being a watch person? Is it, is you won't, it a good thing? Yeah, I don't think you'll be able to help it. You, you will not be able to help not being the answer to prayer. Because what you, you're, you're doing is you're coming from a space of total love. Because? You are open. You have brought all of your, of your day-to-day, becomes, it becomes sourced from this uncontracted stillness that is always already here, yet we consciously start living it. We start living the infinite smile. And this means essentially that we always are offering an appropriate response to whatever circumstances arising. And it's with love and tenderness we become effortlessly helpful. And we approach all situations and all circumstances just like the, the kindest kindergarten teacher you ever saw helps a kid who's just skinned his or her knee. It comes from this place of, man. So you lose self. You lose, your, you, you lose your old relationship to self. If you lose yourself, we have what we call psychosis. And that's not the goal, the goal of practice. It's you lose, you lose the old relationship to self, which is I'm in here and everything else is out there. That gives way to, oh my goodness, look what I've been missing. Yet miraculously, our, I always knew this was here. I always knew that this was my life. Yeah, a lot. A lot. Yeah. Oh, this isn't a question. I was just adding. <laughs> Add on the microphone. Um, I would say that probably all people accidentally discover stillness in their life mm. uh, from time to time, and they say, my God, that was amazing, and you try to recapture it, and it's not easy to do. And examples would be you go for a walk, and you walk the same place over and over again, and one day you see things in a whole different way. Yeah. Um, and it's that you probably your mind has become still, and you, you become an observer. But I think the people have experienced that in their life, even without practicing stillness. But it's, it's a fleeting thing. Right. So you're touching on exactly where the next step is. And the next step is to recognize that even states like this are fleeting. What happens if we get beyond the state? If we actually get beyond the state and experience, experientially we bring that 
gift into the way we make our coffee in the morning. The world shifts and we shift with it in that moment. It's a way of consciously and purposefully going into that stillness, clicking with the remote, clicking the mind off and letting us use that mind as a tool. It's, it's a great way of saying it. We, everyone in here is here, my guess, most people come to spiritual practice because they feel like they, there's something there. They just don't quite know how to quantify and qualify. So their mind is actually what gets them in here. And then what we realize is that this work is about getting, what, getting to what's beyond time and beyond mind and letting that then source our experience. So we come from here, which is boundless and doesn't have to defend anything and is totally open and loving and smiling and from that place, we change the world and get changed by it. And, and perhaps, um, just trying to think how... If you Don't think to, too much, though. I'm not thinking too okay, much. Okay, good. <laughs> We've all been walking and being yeah. consumed in our minds. Yeah. There's nothing around us. Right. And when you are open to what's happening and being an observer of things around you, you can walk by a person and connect. Yes. Um, because you don't have the zillion things that are right. going on in your mind that cause you to walk past and never see that person or look them in the eye. Yeah, and that's living in the moment. Right. And when you do that to someone, you're giving them the greatest gift of all, actually seeing them. When someone feels actually seen or actually heard, you can almost hear their heartbreak. It's that powerful. And so... We practice living there. Yeah. Very well said. Thank you.